But we are on page 5. We're looking at Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. This is paragraph 4 in the Harmony. We're studying the life of Messiah from a Jewish perspective. We're very early in on, or very early into, his life. We ended by looking at the genealogy. And I just want to say one final thing about the genealogy, um, which concluded with this particular slide. The first thing is this, maybe I wasn't clear, but the genealogy of Matthew traces... The, the, the genealogy recorded in Matthew traces the, um, the lineage of the Messiah through Joseph. And what it reveals to us is that Yeshua, the Messiah, did not descend from the royal line. That's the purpose of Matthew's genealogy. It is not to reveal his real line as many have said, myself included, the real line or his lineage through David. And remember, the lineage in Matthew is the royal lineage. takes us from David to Solomon down to Jeconiah. And remember that when we get to Jeconiah, we find there's a curse pronounced on that king in which God said, no son of Jeconiah will ever sit on the throne. Joseph is a descendant of Jeconiah. Matthew's purpose in recording Joseph's genealogy is to demonstrate that if Yeshua really was connected to Joseph, he could not sit on the throne. That's the point of his genealogy. On the other hand, Luke's genealogy traces the lineage of Yeshua through Mary. Mary is also a descendant of David, but not through the royal line of Solomon, but through another son of David, whose name is Nathan. So as a result, Yeshua is a son of David, a descendant of David, not of what was established as the royal line, which if he was, would would not permit him to be king over Israel. Because of the curse on one of David's sons in the royal line, Jeconiah. Does that make sense? Luke's genealogy traces Mary's genealogy. She is not connected to Solomon and Jeconiah, but rather connected to David through Nathan. Now, there were two things that um, would permit one to become a king in Israel. Either you were a descendant of David, or you were to be a descendant of David, That was true of the kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. You remember after Solomon's reign, the kingdom split. Southern kingdom of Judah in the south, northern kingdom of Israel in the north. The kings in the south were permitted to be kings by virtue of the fact that they were descendants of David and they reigned on the throne in Judah. One dynasty, the family of David. In the north, however, there were no sons of David that reigned over Israel. And there were nine different dynasties that were represented in Israel. The way that you became a king over the northern kingdom of Israel was by divine appointment or prophetic sanction. A prophet had to come and uh, convey the right for you to reign on the throne. If you attempted to seize the throne, 
apart from a divine sanction or appointment, those kings were ultimately assassinated. But those kings that did reign on the throne in Israel, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, all were so appointed by a prophet. They were all wicked kings, because none of them were descendants of David. All of them were rebelling against the nation of, or the people of Judah. So they were always wicked. But nevertheless, they could come to the throne and reign on a throne if a prophet so authenticated them for that role, which would occur when God would so call a prophet to do just that. In the case of Yeshua, he, had, he is a descendant of David through Nathan to Mary, but he also has divine sanction when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and tells Mary that the one that is to be born is to be Israel's king. So he is one who both has divine sanction as well as a descendant of David. Now that's where we sort of uh, ended. And then we saw that these four titles are found when you combine the genealogy of Matthew and the genealogy recorded in Luke. You find that he is referred to as the son of David, in which case he is seen to be Israel's king. He's referred to as the son of Abraham. That's Matthew's genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. As the son of David, he's a king. As a son of Abraham, he's a Jew. When you get to the genealogy in Luke's gospel, he concludes by saying, Yeshua is the son of Adam, the son of God. By referring to him as the son of Adam, he's the son of man. Speaking of his humanity as the son of God, it speaks of his divinity and his divine nature. As such, Yeshua, or Jesus, is the Messiah, the Jewish God-man king. And so when we say God-man, this is a theological point that uh, I ought to just, just state. And that is when we speak of Yeshua as the God-man, the reason why we have a dash in there is because we do not refer to him as the God and man. Not that it is technically inappropriate to speak of him as being God and man, but he is the God-man. That is to say, he existed as God before his incarnation, before him becoming a man. That's why John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. So he always existed and exists as God. At his birth, he joins to his divine nature a human nature. He now takes on humanity. And in doing that, he becomes a unique person as the God-man. He never ceases to be God, but as the God-man, he is unique because he now has two natures. He has a divine nature, he has a human nature. It's unique because you and I as human beings have one nature. We have a human nature. And as a hu with our human nature, we're also our fallen. In the case of Yeshua, he has a divine nature, but he is not fallen. And that because he's come about by the work of the Holy Spirit. Since he is the God-man, he can respond to things differently. When Yeshua says that no man knows the day or the hour, not even the, the Son of, of God, what he means to say by that is, if he responds to an issue by virtue of his human nature, he can be limited. In which case he could say, I don't know certain things. On the other hand, if he chooses to respond to things by virtue of his divine nature, well then he knows everything. So when he dies uh, on the tree, he can only do that once he's become incarnate. Because God cannot die. 
But as the God-man, he now has a human nature, and thus he can be subjected to the limitations of humanity. Therefore, he can say, I am thirsty. As God, he's never thirsty. He can say, I'm hungry, such as the, to his disciples before he meets the woman at the well in John chapter 4. But as God, he's never hungry. And it goes on and on. So, now that doesn't resolve everything, but it helps to explain some things. Because, nevertheless, there are still many mysteries uh, to, be, to be seen with respect to uh, the coming of Messiah into our world. That's just uh, the mystery of it all. But some of these things help us to understand why certain events transpire in his life. Now with that, let's just uh, move on. We're now going to be looking at paragraphs 4 to 11. In the outline, it comes under the title, The Advent of the King. And in paragraph 4, we're taking a look at, and this is, uh, this is covering Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. This is the announcement of the birth of Yochanan, that's John. Yochanan the Immerser, John the Baptist. The baptizer. I guess the Baptist is not a good good word. Southern or otherwise. No. But uh, no, the birth of Yochanan, the immerser, I guess you'd say, uh, to Zechariah or Zechariah. So let's take a look at some of the things. Uh, first of all, two key people emerge in this section in Luke chapter 1. The first, of course, is Zechariah. And his name means the Lord remembers. He's named after the prophet in Israel. His wife Elizabeth. Is, her name means the oath of God. So when you look at their names together, it means God remembers his oath. So these are kind of uh, neat things that are going to emerge through these two persons with regard to the coming of the Messiah. When we get to paragraph 8, and if you'd like to just take a look at it very quickly, um, you can see it in chapter Luke chapter 1, verse 72-73. It says in verse 67, And his father, that's Yochanan, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he had a divine or a prophetic utterance. And when you go down to verse 72, 73, he says, To show mercy toward our father, fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore unto Abraham our father. And so there's the play on the two parents of Yochanan. To remember his holy covenant, Zechariah, God remembers, the oath which he swore unto Abraham, our father, Elizabeth. Um, God remembers, or the oath of God. Now, Zechariah, we are told, and by the way, I'm hesitant just a little bit here because it's just hard for, the lighting is not that good. And, um, but if you look at Luke chapter 1, verse 5, it says, This was in the days of Herod, king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah of the course of Abijah, and he had a wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So Zechariah served in the course of Abijah, or in the division of Abijah. The division were the division of the Levites. And that division is recorded in First Chronicles chapter 24, where David divides the tribe of Levi up into 24 divisions or 24 courses. And the course or the division of Abijah is found in First Chronicles 24. I think it's like verse 13 or something like that. And it's the eighth course or the eighth division of the Levitical tribe. 
and by divide and what he was doing was trying to organize the Levites in their ministry and in their service as it was getting prepared to expand. It's the whole thing about reorganizing. In fact, this is what the elders are doing with Beth Ariel. We're talking about, okay, we're planning on growing, we're planning on increasing. How can we anticipate that and how can we deal with that? Well, that's what David was dealing with. He couldn't build the temple, but he could get all the materials together for his descendant Solomon to build the temple. He can acquire the land for the building of the temple. He gets everything in place. He even enlarges the borders. He establishes peacefulness among his enemies. He begins to have an alliance with some of his neighbors, Hiram up in Tyre, so that he can get some of the cedars of Lebanon down to be used for the building of palaces, the big building of uh, the temple. And Solomon's going to benefit from all that David does in anticipating Solomon's reign and the building of the temple. He also gets engaged in, in uh, writing songs, the book of Psalms. He writes the majority of them are meant for worship in the temple. And now what he does is he divides up the Levites into courses so that during the course of the year, these different courses can serve on and off and sort of round-robin things uh, to attend to all of the needs that will occur in the temple. Zechariah, we are told, was of the course of Abijah and his course was on duty for the next two weeks. We're told that each one of these courses would serve for two weeks and their specific form of service was chosen by the casting uh, of lots. So what you had basically in, in sort of a hierarchical arrangement was you had the high priest, you then had 24 chief priests, so that when you read of the chief priests in the scripture, these are those priests, those Levites that were um, that stood over the 24 courses. So there were 24 chief priests and they overseed the 24 different courses that of a priest. And then you had the common priests which served in those courses. When your course was chosen, you served for two weeks. And by means of the casting of lots, those that congregate during that time that are members of that course, they would cast lots to determine what their responsibilities would be. According to uh, Josephus, there are approximately 50 priests on duty each week. On the Shabbat, on, on Sabbath, all were on duty. And Josephus says, numbers them all at 20,000. The Talmud says there were 85,000. So we're not exactly sure what numbers to um, to accept, but you can see there are a large number of priests. They would cast lots to determine, okay, who's going to clean the altar of the ashes of the previous sacrifices? Who's going to prepare the animals? Who's going to place the animals on the altar? Who's actually going to be sacrificing those animals? Who's going to be arranging the 12 loaves of bread that were changed morning and evening in the holy place on the table of showbread? Who was going to kindle the menorah morning and evening because it was to be kept perpetually lit? Who was going to prepare the altar of incense? And who was going to actually light that altar of incense or cause the incense to be burned so as to ascend in smoke uh, up toward heaven with uh, representing the prayers of the people? All that was done by casting of lots. And so when your lot was cast and you were given opportunity to serve, 
particularly with the lighting of the altar of incense, it was considered an exceptional privilege. What would happen with the lighting of the altar of incense is that one set of priests would take some of the coals from the altar that was outside the holy place, bring those coals in and place them on the altar of incense. And then the individual that was uh, chosen to light the incense, as it were, would take or sprinkle the incense, would take the incense and sprinkle it on the hot coals, and then the smoke would ascend. That's what Zechariah was having the opportunity to do. And the incense ascending up toward the ceiling of the holy place represented the prayers of the people as they would ascend up into heaven. We're told in verse 6, Luke chapter 1, that both um, Elizabeth and Zechariah were both righteous before God. That is to say, they were members of the faithful remnant. It's really important that we get this concept of the faithful remnant into our minds if we're going to understand God's word most fully. Because when we read that, we say both righteous, we just think, oh, that means they were very good. They were obedient or nice people or something of that sort. But we have to remember in Israel, there were those that did not believe. And there were those few who were people of faith, who trusted God. The imagery of the faithful remnant goes back to Elijah, who when Elijah prayed before the Lord, he said, Lord, your prophet, you know, of all your prophets, I'm the only one that, that is left. And that there's no one else worshiping you and serving you. The Lord says, hey listen, I've reserved 6,000 to myself. Still not a very large number of uh, faithful individuals. But nevertheless, they are faithful remnant. Throughout the course of Israel's history, Jewish people who were faithful unto God in any particular era, age, or point of history were always the minority. They never were the majority of the people of Israel. They were always a minority. So when the writer, when Luke tells us they were both righteous, he's telling us these two individuals were members of the faithful remnant. They really trusted God and they loved Him. It says in the, in the text here that they were blameless. It doesn't mean that they were sinless. It means that when they did offend God or did rebel against God, they offered the necessary sacrifices and, exp and repented of their sin. But it doesn't mean to say that they never sinned and somehow that they were sinless, only that they were obedient unto God. They brought the proper sacrifices, they had their sins covered. So Zechariah for two weeks was responsible to light the altar of incense. We mentioned this. First of all, there would be a, some priest set apart who would take a hot coal from the altar. He'd bring it to the altar of incense to the holy, in the holy place. And you remember how the temple, you know, and this is difficult too sometimes, we save the temple and we have to step back and answer the question, well, what do you mean by the temple? Because sometimes we say the temple, we mean the temple mount area. Sometimes when we say the temple, we mean the courtyards in, a, in addition to the building that housed the holy place and the holy of holies. And you remember there was the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, and the court of the men. And so when we think of the temple, are we thinking of the temple mount upon which you had the court of the Gentiles, court of the women, and the court of the Jewish men, the Israelites? Are we talking about the temple... Uh, area proper 
which would have housed the court of the women and the court of the men? Or are we talking about the structure within the court of the men that was made up of two uh, areas, one called the holy place and the other called the holy of holies? So when we, when we speak of the temple, we're talking about that structure that had the holy place and then the holy of holies. And in the holy place, there were three objects. When you entered, on the right was the table of showbread, a wooden table overlaid with gold, twelve loaves of bread, changed the morning and the evening, representing the twelve tribes of Israel and God's provision for, for them. On the left-hand side, you had the, the menorah, the seven-branch menorah. It represented God's dwelling presence among his people. And that was to be lit all the time. It was never to go out. It was an oil lamp, and thus they were to make sure in the morning it was lit, and they would check it in the evening to see that it was continually lit, and they'd continually refill it with oil so that it would never go out. And then in the center of the holy place was the altar of incense. It stood in front of the veil of the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And so it's there that they are now bringing the, these coals onto the altar. And then Zechariah would sprinkle the incense for it to burn. He would drop the incense on the coals so that the smoke would ascend upwards and over into the holy of holies. And would represent the prayers of the people. This obligation was performed twice a day, morning and evening, for two weeks. Now, two sons of Aaron had performed this ceremony in Leviticus chapter 10 in an improper way and were judged, and as a result, they, were, they died. Because of this event, there was a common teaching in first century Judaism regarding the lighting of the altar of incense. And so if any priest made a mistake lighting the altar of incense, they figured he too would die like Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Aaron, had died when they inappropriately and improperly lit the altar of incense. This was further embellished, this tradition or understanding, by adding that an angel would appear at the right side of the altar to strike you dead for improperly lighting the altar of incense. So it's no wonder that in Luke's account, we are told that as um, Zechariah goes to light the altar of incense, and keep in mind this further description of them, not only were they blameless, they had no child, which is reminiscent of uh, Abraham and Isaac and uh, Rachel and Hannah. All of these were individuals that had no children, and, they, and Elizabeth sort of follows in those that same uh, pattern and they were well stricken in years so they are older and presumably past the age of bearing a child but it appears they still hoped and desired to have a child nonetheless in any case uh, with that as a backdrop as Zechariah comes to uh, light the altar of incense we're told in verse 11, there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And thus it says in verse 13 that, uh, and the Lord was on the right side, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Well, now we have an understanding why he was so fearful, because he figured, did something wrong, 
and the angel now is at the right side of the altar and he's wondering if his will is in order. So he figures his time, his day, his time is now up. But the angel says to him, verse 13, says, fear not. And further tells him in verse 14 that Elizabeth shall bear a son. So it appears that when Zechariah was lighting the altar of incense, he was also uttering a prayer. And perhaps the prayer he was offering at the time was, I hope I'm doing this right, but also that the Lord might yet answer their prayer and they might have a son. And the angel appears to tell them that God has answered your prayers. It says because, in verse 14, fear not because thy, your supplications, your prayer is heard. And your wife shall have joy and gladness. Oh, and your wife Elizabeth shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Yochanan. The Lord is gracious, or the grace of the Lord. And certainly the Lord is being gracious to them, providing them with a child. Yochanan will announce, his name means the Lord is gracious, but he's going to announce a new era. A time where the grace of God is going to be displayed in a most powerful and poignant way. Because the one that Yochanan will precede will be none other than the Messiah of Israel who will usher in an era and time of grace, of unprecedented grace, as he will bring about the fulfillment of all of God's word and all of God's promises. So this child is going to announce, um, is going to bring that about, is going to initiate it. And then the angel says certain things about Yochanan. Notice what he says. First of all, he's going to be great in the sight of the Lord in verse 15. His greatness will be further uh, commented on by Yeshua himself, in which he will say, there has been no greater prophet than John. And so his greatness is one that Yeshua is going to elaborate on. He is really great. And yet he says, those that follow him are greater than him. And But for John's case, he is going to be great in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord, as I said, will evaluate him. And we'll see just how great he was. Secondly, he was to abstain from anything that had alcohol. And that you'll see uh, in verse 15 or so. He shall drink no wine or strong drink. And this was one of the provisions for taking a Nazarite vow. Not a Nazarene vow but a Nazarite vow, and they're different. Being a Nazarene means you're from the city of Nazareth. But being a Nazarite meant that you took a vow in which you dedicated your life or time in your life to God. Usually the Nazarite vow was something one took voluntarily, and it was something that was for a limited amount of time. We do have some individuals whose Nazarite vow was not taken voluntarily and it was taken for their entire life for example there are three one is Samson he was called to be a uh, Nazarite from birth but he was unfaithful to his vow and in his unfaithfulness to his vow he was then taken over by the Philistines eventually he repents and at the end of his life the scripture says he killed more Philistines at his death than in his life in one sense that's at least a, a, a positive statement of sorts on the other hand, it's, it's, uh, it sort of leaves you flat, you know, that uh, his life was not everything it could have been. He was a person with great potential, a Nazarite from his youth. He had incredible strength, though a little man. I bet he was only about five, six, wore glasses, something like that. 
but nevertheless was a person was a person of great strength. How strong was this guy? I'm telling you. You ever read some of the things he did? One of the, one of the things he did that utterly fascinates me is just for the heck of it, he heads down to Gaza and decides, you know what, I think I'm going to make the people of Gaza vulnerable to their enemies. And so what's the easiest way to do that? Just take their gates so that they can't close the gates of the city. So he pulls the gates off their hinges. Now these gates are not little doors. I mean, these gates are like, you know, they're like 15, 20 feet tall. And who knows how wide, you know, how thick they were. They're keeping enemies out. So these are huge gates. And he doesn't just take them off their hinges. and then picks them up. And he then carries them for about 20 miles, just, you know, to carry them. And then he plants them on this hillside and he sits down, sort of like taunting the Philistines. Try to come and get them, you know. But he just does things like this that are just, um, I don't know, somewhat uh, juvenile. But on the other hand, they're very impressive, aren't they? You know. But anyway, he was a person of great strength. He had great potential, called by God from his birth, was a Nazarite, but he squandered the abilities and the things entrusted to him. But nevertheless, he was a Nazarite. Samuel, on the other hand, was a Nazarite from birth, but he was faithful to his vow throughout his entire life. Again, not a perfect man, but a very good man. In the Hebrew Scriptures, he, he takes our, he's in our top three, I would say. You know, with Abraham, Moses, and Samuel. I think are, th- are three top. Uh, of course, you got to add David, Another important figure, maybe Joshua, and you've got our five major figures in the Hebrew Scriptures in terms of events that unfold. But he was the man that would anoint our first king, Saul. He'd anoint our second king, David. And uh, he was the last of the judges, the first of the formal prophets. So a very important figure in uh, Israel's history. And then uh, Yochanan, that says, who will be fa- he'll be the third Nazarite, and he will be faithful to his vow. It also says, uh, thirdly, in verse 16 or so, it says that he was filled with the Spirit of God from his mother's womb. To be filled, and this is important, it means to be controlled. To be filled means to be controlled. The word means to be controlled by the Spirit of God, yielded to the Spirit of God, and thereby led by God's Spirit. Doesn't mean to have greater insight doesn't mean to have greater spiritual sensitivity. It means being controlled. And therefore the comparison Paul makes is to be filled with the Spirit, not drunk with wine. Out of control. But rather controlled. Now he's not saying you should never drink wine or whatever. But what he is saying is um, we should not be uncontrolled. We should be controlled by God's Spirit, yielded to Him. And Yochanan would be that. He says many of the of in the fourth thing he says, if you look at verse 16, I think it is, and many of the children of Israel will he turn unto the Lord their God. What a neat thing about John's ministry. He's going to be a catalyst for many Jewish people to know the Lord. He is going to initiate what many refer to as a back to God movement. He's going to initiate a movement of repentance. And that's going to be his word. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. By the way, that's going to be Yeshua's first words. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message John gives, same message Yeshua will give as well. And what he is doing, he's initiating a back-to-God movement. 
we might call it a revival among Israel. And thus many of the people of Israel, many Jewish people, will turn to the Lord their God. And we read of some of those earliest disciples of Yeshua were John's disciples. And John's great words, I must decrease, but he must increase. And therefore, when his disciples leave him to follow the Messiah, he is thrilled. He is thrilled that he is a catalyst that has led people not only unto God, but unto Messiah whom they now see. And thus, John will be the one who says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So as if he's saying, that's the one you now need to follow. So this is an amazing, amazing man. And he's going to prepare people to be receptive to the Messiah. In verse 17, he's going to be empowered by God's Spirit in the same way that Elijah was empowered by God's Spirit. And thus, turned people's hearts to the Lord and combated uh, those that would oppose him. We'll see John being as strong and stalwart a figure as Elijah was. And so several correlations are made between Yochanan and Elijah in the Gospels, and we're going to see them as we go through this. But he will come in the power of Elijah. He'll have a special ministry to the believing remnant like Elijah had in his day. And then in verse 17 it says that... Um, and he shall go before his face in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the obedient to walk in the wisdom of the just. And then he says, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared for him. So his purpose is to have a group ready to accept the Messiah when he comes. Zechariah is given some very good news. Look at verse 19. The angel says, I was to speak unto you. And by the way, the angel we're told is Gabriel. Gabriel's name means the might of God. It'd be the same angel that's going to be, appear to Miriam or Mary to tell her she's going to be the bearer of the Messiah. But he tells us that he, I was sent to speak on you, verse 20, and to bring you these good tidings, these words of goodness, this good news. And the problem is, John's response is not to believe it. He says, how can this be? This is an impossibility. My wife is old. I am old. We haven't had children now. How can I know this is true? His question is coming out of a spirit of unbelief and doubt. As a result, the angel gives Zechariah a unique sign. Well, I'm going to help you to believe, he tells him. And he says, what's going to happen is, verse 20, you will be silent, not able to speak, until the day that these things shall come to pass. And his first words, when John is born, or, just, or, or shortly after he is born, is to affirm the name. Like he was told, you to call him John. Call him Yochanan. So that when he is born, the first words he can utter is, his name will be Yochanan. And now he exhibits faith, and now he can speak. But because he's exhibiting doubt, he is given this as a sign. And so we're told, since he spoke a question of unbelief, he will speak no more until the promise is fulfilled and Yochanan is circumcised on the eighth day. Outside, remember, the priests are all gathered and, and other Israelites in the court of the men are outside waiting for him to come out. Remember, he's in the temple. He's in the holy place. He's lit the altar of incense. 
He's been praying perhaps for a child. An angel appears. He gets freaked out. Oh no, I did something wrong. The angel says, don't be afraid. By the way, you're going to have a child. You name him Yochanan. He's going to be great. He's going to be this. He's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's going to herald the Messiah. And John says, I don't get it. I just don't believe I just don't believe this is possible. And so he says, well, listen, I'm going to help your unbelief. You won't be able to speak until he is circumcised. The people outside are saying, what's taking him so long? You know, because he only has to take some incense and, okay, and he comes out, you know. So they're outside and they're wondering what's going on. And they couldn't, he couldn't tell them when he comes out what happened because he can't speak. But the people recognized something happened because look at verse 21. The people were waiting for Zechariah. They marveled why he tarried in the temple. And then, and when he came out, he couldn't speak. And they perceived he had seen a vision. So they're they're sensing something happened that uh, Zechariah is not able to tell them. Something significant has taken place. And so in verse 24 and 25, after he completed his two-week course of service, he goes home. Not, ha- not able to speak. So in verse 24, after these days, Elizabeth's wife, after those two weeks, he goes home, his wife concedes, concedes, and she hid herself for five months, saying, Thus the Lord done unto me in the days wherein he looked upon me to take away my reproach among men. So now, uh, that this sense of... Um, I, I don't want to say it this way. I was going to say being judged. She wasn't being judged. But in biblical times, childlessness was considered like a, 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 the most horrible of circumstances. Today, it's not so much that way. But there it was because the whole husband's lineage is, uh, you know, is contained. And that's why they had the, the right of leveret marriage and... You know, raising up descendants for a brother who passes away so that the line can be preserved. And so that's what she's speaking about when she says, The Lord has taken away my reproach among men. This is now five months later. Now, when we get to the next section, um, in paragraph five, we're looking at the announcement of the birth to Miriam, to Mary, in, chap- in section five. We're looking at Luke chapter one, verse 26. Notice now in the sixth month, Sixth month of what? Well, the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So, two-thirds into her pregnancy, the angel Gabriel appears again. This time, he's not in the hill country of Judea, which is where Elizabeth and Zechariah live, down south toward Judah, but now he's up north in Galilee, in the city of Nazareth. And there he appears to a virgin who is betrothed Betrothal in the first century was a contract to be married. Now that may occur right near birth. Families make contract with each other. But that it's different than being engaged. An engagement in the Western world, you could break off. It may not be the greatest thing in the world, but it's not anything illegal or wrong. But betrothal was a legally binding contractual arrangement. And the only way it could be circumvented is by a formal divorce. And that's why later we'll read that Joseph, being a righteous man, sought to divorce his wife privately so that she would not be uh, thought, thought of in a wrong way. But she's betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. They're of the house of David. And this woman, of course, is Miriam. Now, 
Uh, this is the same angel that just appeared to Zechariah. And Gabriel told Zechariah he would be the father of the forerunner of the Messiah. So now he's speaking to the mother of the Messiah. So what an incredible ministry Gabriel has to be the one announcing uh, all of these upcoming events. Miriam, by the way, her name comes from the word Mara, means to be bitter. And it's the same name, of course, as Moses' sister. Of course, when we move it from you know, the Greek into the Latin into the English, we get Mary. But Gabriel's message is this. Number one, he says, if you take a look at verse, we're looking at Luke 1, verse 31 or so. It says, Behold, you will conceive and bring forth a son and shall call his name Yeshua. So first of all, uh, he's told the incarnation will be in a man. You will have a son. And what he is saying is that God will become man. Look what he says. He will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give unto him the throne of his father David. So number one, the incarnation will be in that of a, a man. He'll take on human nature and appear as a man. His name will be Yeshua, which is the word to save, because he will save his people. He will be great, the angel tells him. The angel tells him he will be the Son of God, which is another way of saying he will be God. To be the Son of God means to be God. It doesn't mean to be less than God. It means to be God. Just like Barnabas, son of encouragement, doesn't mean to be less than encouragement. It means to be an encourager or an encouraging person. He will fulfill the Davidic covenant. It's really beautiful how he portrays this. Look at verse 33. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there shall be no end. And in verse 32 or so, the Lord shall give him the throne of his father David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Let me just take a moment here to take a look at the Davidic covenant with you. Turn with me in your Bibles uh, if you have them, 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want to show you two passages that speak of the, um, the Davidic covenant and the promise that the Lord makes to David. So you're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we'll just we'll pick it up like ver, the second part of verse 11. This is God's promise to David. He said, and this is referred to as the Davidic covenant. Now, you remember we talked about the Abrahamic covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant made with Abraham, Genesis 12, reiterated in other passages, has three major parts to it: promise of land, promise of a descendant, promise of blessing, and those three. Uh, aspects of the promise to Abraham all become separate covenants unto themselves. So the land promised to Abraham will, will be solidified and reconfirmed in the land covenant found in like Deuteronomy 30 to 32 or so. The promise of a descendant will be solidified and enlarged with respect to the Davidic covenant, which is what we're going to look at in a moment in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the promise of blessing is going to be enlarged and solidified in what will be called, referred to as the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31. So all these pieces become, uh, become enlarged and reaffirmed in separate covenants of them unto themselves. So now we're just looking at this promise of a descendant to Abraham, and particularly the promise made to David. Notice what he says in verse 11. The Lord declares to you, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. So that's a key word in the Davidic covenant, house. 
And that's why you see Gabriel restates it. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. It's the second key word with the Davidic covenant. Look what Gabriel says. He says, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And then if you look, verse 13, He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's the third key word. House, throne, kingdom. And you see, those three terms are reiterated by Gabriel to Miriam with respect to the Messiah's birth. Because they're meant to, um, they're meant to capture in our minds the promises to David. Now, I want you to look further with me at this section. Look one more time. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Notice this phrase. Who will come from your own body. It's a very key phrase. You want to highlight that. Which means it's going to be someone immediately from David. So the individual probably thought of here is Solomon. Because that's the man that comes immediately from David's own body. Notice what he also says. He's the one who will build a house for my name. Solomon certainly does that. I will establish his throne. Look at verse 14. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. Well, this is very much like Solomon too. Notice that there's this warning that when he does wrong, I will bring judgment or discipline upon him. But my love will never be taken from him as I took it away from Saul whom I removed from before you, that is, before David. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. There are the three words again that are the signals for the Davidic covenant and they are reiterated by Gabriel. So twice you see them in this passage, 2 Samuel, and then you see Gabriel mention it. Notice a third thing. I mentioned that, first of all, he said, the descendant will come from your own body, 2 Samuel. That that descendant will be disciplined if he disobeys, Second Samuel. And now he says, look at these words, your house, your kingdom, your throne. Notice he's speaking about someone else. Your throne, your house, your kingdom. Now if you will, ch- turn with me to First Chronicles. Let me make sure I got this. First Chronicles 17. Now notice when the promise is restated in First Chronicles, it is not restated in the very same way. If you look at verse, let's uh, let's look at verse 10. I declare to you, 1 Chronicles 17, verse 10, I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, look what he says here, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons. And I will establish his kingdom. Now the other one said from your own body. This one says a descendant that will succeed you from one of your own sons. So it looks like this is someone distant. Certainly not one from his own body. Notice this other thing that is different here too. He says he is the one who will build a house for me. And I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. Notice there's no statement of any discipline. 
And the other one, he said, if he disobeys me, I will judge him and I will discipline him. Here he doesn't make any statements of discipline whatsoever. And then look at this last phrase. I will set him over my house and my kingdom. His throne will be established forever. The other one said, I will establish your house and your kingdom. So it's interesting the difference. Now maybe we shouldn't make much of it. But it's possible... And this is the way the Hebrew Scriptures always work. There's these little doors that are opened. They're jarred, you know. It seems to me that when you look at the Davidic promise in 1 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, that is a promise stated to David and the person in mind is Solomon. But when you come here, now it appears that the person in mind is not Solomon but is a distant offspring of David who will not need to be chastised or disciplined, for there's no statement about that happening, and that he will establish God's kingdom and God's, uh, what does he say, God's kingdom uh, and his house uh, forever. It's almost as if, well, here it's not about the the, the throne or kingdom that David establishes and that Solomon will build upon, but maybe that kingdom that the Messiah will build when he comes. So it appears to me that a case could be made that the Davidic promise in First Chronicles looks to the distant future of the Messiah, whereas the Davidic promise in Second Samuel looks to Solomon, who's the immediate fulfiller of that in the line that is to uh, descend. So you can take a look at that and look at it more clearly. But it is certainly clear that Gabriel is making, a, making an association with the Davidic promise here. And I think these two statements of the Davidic covenant are one is reflecting Solomon and the other is reflecting the promised Messiah of Israel. He will fulfill the Davidic covenant. And so I, I mention these here. He, according to Second Samuel, he would have an eternal house, an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom, and he would have an eternal descendant. And certainly, Yeshua the Messiah is the one who provides all of that. And that's what Gabriel is certainly uh, alluding to. Now, Miriam raises a question in verse 34. She says, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Very different than Zechariah's question. Zechariah's question is, this can't be because we're too old. It was a question that arose out of doubt and unbelief. Miriam's question is, wow, that's incredible. How's that all going to happen through me? I can't imagine how I'm going to do that. Hers is one out of faith, but is a question that says, you know, what is the method by which this is going to be accomplished? It's not arising from doubt. She asked, how can this be true? So she's saying, I'm a virgin. So how is it that I'm going to give birth to a child? And in verse 35, the the uh, angel Gabriel tells her. The answer is that the Holy Spirit is going to bring this about. How does he do this? The Holy Spirit is going to energize one of Miriam's eggs so that that one that would be born will be holy, the Son of God, which is what Gabriel says to Miriam uh, in this section. He says in verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so that as a result... That which is born will be holy, indeed, the Son of God. So Miriam was not a surrogate mother because the child had to have a direct descendant from Adam. And there is a teaching, 
and you may be familiar with this, that the sin nature was not... Tra- the reason why for a virgin birth was because the sin nature is not transmitted through the mother but only the father. And thus the idea is that the virgin birth protected him from that, but that isn't true. Psalm 51 shows that the sin nature is transmitted through both the father and the mother. We're not really sure how that is, but it is in sin, my mother conceived me, is uh, the statement in Psalm 51. So the purpose of the virgin birth was not to somehow bypass the sin nature. The Holy Spirit overshadowing her does that already. But rather, um, what protected Yeshua from inheriting sin nature was not that of not having a human father, but it was the presence of the Holy Spirit within him. And that's all that we can really say. The howness of that is part of the mystery. But we have to keep in mind, God is not limited to doing things in any one particular way. God is omnipotent, and there are just certain advantages to being omnipotent that you can do things that uh, some might not think about. But God could have produced a sinless child with both the father and the mother if he chose to do it that way. Um, But he didn't. Why didn't he? One, I think, was to certainly authenticate the fulfillment of the Messianic passage in Isaiah 7.14 that a virgin would conceive and bear a child. The other is to accentuate the fact that the uh, line of David through the kings was cursed through Jeconiah and therefore he could not be born of one who was a direct descendant uh, through that line. So it was the Holy Spirit that protects Yeshua from the sin nature as the angel had indicated. In verse 36, six months since Elizabeth uh, became pregnant and, and behold Elizabeth you're uh, relative, your kinswoman, she also has conceived a son in her old age and this is the sixth month with her that was called barren. So notice in Luke one twenty-five, she hid herself for five months. Luke one twenty-six, in the sixth month of her pregnancy the angel comes to Gabriel and now in verse 37 it's the sixth month uh, that uh, Miriam uh, learns of this and then makes uh, tracks, or shortly thereafter will make tracks to visit with Elizabeth and spend three months uh, with her with her there. So she puts herself, verse 38, in the safekeeping of God. No word from God shall be void of power. And Miriam says, Behold, the handmaiden of the Lord, be it unto me according to your word. She just entrusts herself to the Lord to take care of her. And she has good reason to do that. First of all, she's betrothed to Joseph. And according to the Mosaic law, if one is found pregnant before, uh, during betrothal, she is found to be and found to be unfaithful. Uh, she's to be stoned. So she's trusting God uh, with her life on this count. Certainly, in times of Jewish history, when the death penalty was not practiced as such, still a woman could found pregnant during betrothal could be ostracized from the Jewish community, not given a Jewish wedding, a Jewish burial. Uh, she would just be considered an outcast. And thus she would have to entrust herself uh, to the Lord to take care of her. And she had to trust God with her relationship to Joseph as well because she didn't know what Joseph would do. And we know from Matthew's passage that he was thinking about divorcing her in a private way, in a way that would um, not besmirch her reputation. But nevertheless, uh, she had to trust that Joseph would not turn his back upon her. And it would take Gabriel 
to appear to Joseph in a dream to encourage him not to do uh, just that. So, and that you'll find in paragraph 9, which is found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. So, uh, okay, now where are we on time? Because I just don't have a... What is it? Okay, so we're going to stop there. And um, why don't we pray? Is there, does anybody have any quick question they might like to ask?